with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to Phronesis. Thank you for checking in wherever you are in the world. Uh, We just, if you listened last week, we had a conversation with Jonathan Reams, and he has published a book. He edited a book, I should say. He didn't publish it. That would be too many hats, I think, Jonathan. But uh, he edited a book, and it's called Maturing Leadership. And it's really looking at the the, the cross-section of adult development theory and leadership. And so if you listened last week, you would have heard us kind of discuss the project, but also give you a little bit of a primer when it comes to adult development theory. And today we have our first guest in this series, Marianne Rue. She has 30 years of global experience as an HR executive, future of work strategist, and and, and professor of leadership. She holds a master's degree in HR and organizational psychology and PhD in leadership in the future of work context. She currently runs Rue Consulting, a global niche consulting firm based in Dublin, Ireland, and teaches regularly at business schools around the world. She has worked for PwC, Accenture, Deloitte, and Mercer, and has held two HR director roles in two countries at Woolworths Food South Africa and Cricket Australia. Her experience spans several industries, including retail, FMCG, mining, oil and gas, public sector, utilities, infrastructure, media, financial services, telecommunications, sport, NFP, health and pharmaceutical, and tech startups. Her work focuses mainly on future of work strategy, leadership development, and organizational redesign, and HR transformation. She has recently published a book on adaptive HR 
and a personal agility reflection journal, knowing your superpowers is the key to your success in a changing world. And as we mentioned, she's also featured in this edited book by Jonathan, Maturing Leadership, How Adult Development Impacts Leadership. Marianne works pro bono on developing women and alleviating poverty and trauma. She has served on the boards of Hagar Australia, Hagar International, YGAP, and the Edmund Rice Foundation. She was chosen as one of 52 inspirational women at work in South Africa in 2004, one of 20 female entrepreneurs by management today in 2011 in Australia, and in 2015, she won the Excellence in NFP Consulting Award for the Worldwide Who's Who. Marianne, what else do we need to know about you? That's just incredible. That's absolutely incredible. What else do you want listeners to know before we jump in? I don't think there's much else. I would just say, you know, it sounds that impressive, but I know lots of people like me in the country I grew up in. And I think so much of what I do was shaped by growing up in apartheid South Africa in a very complex transformation between governments and seeing the absolute best of leadership and the worst of leadership altogether. And I, I would just say the South African core is probably very, very strong um, and the African mindset and not seeing everything just through a Western lens is probably of a lot of what is informed and why I do what I do, if that makes sense. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, so you had you had a front row seat to a lot of that transformation then. Exactly. That's incredible. And that's really set the stage and informed how you view the world and how you think about work. That's incredible. 100%. And it made me also love complexity and really see people thriving complexity and see that it doesn't have to overwhelm us if we are very adaptive and very resilient. And that's all of that sparked my interest in the work that I do. Oh, wonderful. Well, Jonathan, I know yes. you have some questions for Dr. Rue. That's right. <laughs> so there's a lot that is going on here. So there's a chapter in your book, and we'll focus on that a bit, but the, it's that was part of your PhD. It's also representative, I think, of this broad scope of work you've been doing. And maybe a place to start is this context of the, the future of work or work 4.0. Could you say a little bit about what that looks like? Why is it 4.0 compared to 2.0 or whatever? <laughs> yeah, and you know, this is the thing, you know, you, you watch the world. I'm interested in complexity, right, Jonathan? So for me, it was if we have these 66 very confusing, unintegrated leadership theories and practices out there and competencies and behaviors and Nero and all these things, and nobody can make sense of it, and a million Google things and a million, you know, airport books on leadership, you know, how does one sit leadership in its context? And at the moment, the context is very much Industry 4.0. And I'm going to caveat that and say it was before COVID industry 4.0, but we now have a convergence of three things. So I think the future of work now, and it mustn't be hijacked by any of those three, by the way, I think of three things. The World Economic Forum had this, this quote that I use a lot in 2020, and it says at the start of the decade, you've seen this convergence of three trends. And for me, future of work is a convergence of three trends. One is fourth industrial revolution, technology, acceleration. So mm. AI, automation, robots, how that affects work, the more meaningful work, the impact that has on jobs, the reskilling, upskilling, all of that, the skills-led HR 
all of that is industry 4.0, which was slightly slack before COVID, but now has gone into major acceleration mode. Mm. So that's hitting us. At the same time, which I feel is a bit like the tail wagging the dog in my clients as well, is hybrid, is suddenly becoming future of work. So everybody's now forgetting about industry 4.0, which is alive and well. And now really everything's about hybrid, but hybrid's a part of it because now what the work is has changed, but also where we work has changed. Yes. So now we've got added complexity for leaders, not just how people work is changing, but now where they work is changing. And then the very, how they feel about work, number three is also changed. Now it has to be purposeful and meaningful for me to even want to come back to your office or want to engage. And I've got a better choice of where I want to work and what you need to pay me and the flexibility you need to give me. And by the way, if you don't care about environment, social and governance, ESG issues, and you don't, so now the third thing, so first is industrial, fourth industrial revolution, second is hybrid, third is social justice. Everybody wants to know what, I've never seen so many CEOs comment on social issues on LinkedIn as I have in the last two to three years. It was mm. just never done. You know, I was even in communications for a year. Nobody ever come. You just didn't say anything. Now it's like Black Lives Matter. Yes, we'll post about that. Yes, we'll take a stand on environment. We'll take a stand on a war mm. <laughs> publicly. So how do you navigate? For me, the complexity leaders lead in now in this future of work, which is the convergence of those three things, is exponential. Really, that's how I see it, the convergence of those three things, Jonathan. That's the context. And then your research questions were really around what does leadership look like in that context? Can you say a little bit about where you started that journey? Yeah. So I have been doing this for 30 years and I've been doing leadership development for 30 years. And I honestly, I remember the days when we had competency profiles that were designed down to level four what it looked like, what it didn't look like. And it was the standard set of things, fly everybody in standardized approaches. But then also, then you start to look, there was this confusing use of theories. So some would say, oh, it's definitely contingency theory. And other would say, no, it's emotional intelligence. And then somebody go, oh, no, it's all about the brain changing itself. And I felt <laughs> in a way it was really driven by vendors more yes. than anything else, rather than academic research, right? people selling magical solutions. And there was all, and even MBAs, I, I got teaching MBAs and I would go, oh, I just don't know if this is the stuff that really makes leadership work. So I was interested, Jonathan, in first understanding the evolution of leadership from you know the start to where we are now. What are all the theories? There were anything between 66 and 75 theories. Wow. There were four eras of leadership. And then when you get right to the end of it, people start to talk about now we've got human leadership. You'll see that popping up everywhere. So what's the next fad? I wanted to get off fads and have a total scoping review, which is where we started. Of let me have a look at this. And there were four stages. And the stage we seemed to be in was the integrative era. Okay. And you started to see some researchers moving that way, right? David Day's model was kind of one of the first ones that said, hang on, <laughs> you know, we need an integrative view of this. But also the barriers started breaking down between the disciplines, HR and psychology and education and neuro work and sociology and anthropology. And it was really important for me 
to look not just at what came out of leadership theory and applicate a practice, but also what was happening in terms of behavior of leaders and humans and in the context of how organizations are changing and work is changing. So this scoping review was the, the starting point. And then I went on, I thought, let me interview 22 thought leaders that are kind of on the edge of this. And they either CEOs or academics, it was a mix, and understand what they are saying. What are they seeing? What did they see work and not work? Because we were spending this, I don't know, 365 billion a year on MBAs and others and still getting very poor leaders at the top of organizations Mm. and some very ordinary behaviors. Looking at the scoping review and taking those 22 interviews, I triangulated that and started to pull out and build out on David Day's model with some additions that really just, because, you know, that was a 2009 piece of work again. So 2014 onwards, 2014, Industry 4.0 started. We've now had hybrid. We've now had, what does it look like in 2022 and beyond? Hmm. So Marianne, that's incredible. That sounds fascinating. What are a couple of things that you built upon? I started with David Day at Owls Model from 2009, which was before, if you really think Industry 4.0, really took off in 2014. Mm. So you'd say that even be even though this is a great model to start with, what has happened from then till now in the market is really important. And what I loved about the model is it had a visible, less visible and invisible component. I see an edge, a discomfort from researchers and practitioners when we start to look at less visible and invisible. Mm. And I think that's really, really important. So visible is what we've always known, always done competencies. Less visible, yes, people have started to play in that, leader identity and self-regulation. There's a lot of behavioral work that gets done there, probably not at the level. I think there's, you know, that we've really needed to do it. So there's a lot more research coming through, I think, especially as we understand the brain and how the brain changes. Yeah. And the invisible, the adult development processes is so critical and it hasn't been taken up in enough understanding um, to really pull it through the leadership development and spend the time that is needed for it because it takes time for adults to develop, right? Yes. Um, And so when you start to think about the work that's coming through there, it's so critical to have that as the foundation. And we built upon that in the model. Better? Yeah, and this is where we have gone with this book, basically, Um, And David Day actually wrote the foreword to the book because he sees that this is an underdeveloped and under-researched area. And so the more work we can pull together, the better. And, And at the same time, it's when I remember reading Robert Keegan's In Over Our Heads for one of my doctoral classes back in the late 90s, We all said, what is he talking about? Because it was literally invisible to us because there were not socially normative ways of talking about it. So you're having to kind of fumble your way into something that's the air that we breathe or the water that we swim in, but we don't know how to talk about it. And that's why I think David put that at the invisible level. Mm. But it frames everything. I mean, it it frames everything. It frames how you construct and make meaning of your educational experiences, your work experiences. I mean, it frames everything, right? So so then, Marianne, the the question becomes, you were 
taking this model and, and, and some others that you found in your literature, but you were also, you've alluded to now, what has Industry 4.0 and the future of work added that maybe wasn't in that model? Can, what can you say about those things? I think for me, from the scoping review and from the interviews, it was quite clear to me that, you know, I'm really, in, I was very interested in something else which is slightly different, I think, in my view, again, open for interpretation to adult development and leader identity, and that is sense-making. Sense-making and contextual intelligence. I felt that there was something about making sense of the world that was required in an industry 4.0, very complex world, in a different way to kind of the cognitive process there. But it's kind of that much more strategic, systemic view of strategy, policy, my industry, right? Making sense of that. And I felt that it would be more if I looked at why leadership development failed, even from practitioner, whether it was consulting firms, thought leadership, whether it was research, it was this underdeveloped area of understanding all of what we've spoken about in context. And in our current era, we are in industry 4.0, you know, the social as we spoke and the hybrid era. So what does leadership look like? in this era. And I just make a comment as you spoke there, you said, you know, underrepresented or underdeveloped. I've started to see a few articles coming out that start talking about the importance of context, but they're kind of like early week signals of people really saying, hey, this is important. But also I think Scott in some of your other podcasts like with Barbara Kellerman, the leadership system involves context. So there are people out on the forefront starting to bring this in at least. So you've integrated that into your model, Marianne. For sure. And I think for me, at least, I was about to make a joke a little bit ago and I didn't jump in, but I I was going to say, so it wasn't just contingency theory because there were three meta-analyses proving that, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly, right? (laughs) But, But, you know, Fiedler really was one of the first individuals who started bringing kind of context or the environment to the situation into the dialogue and into the the conversation. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, I have this idea of a paper called Into the Great Wide Open, because I think that's just, it's, and Mary Ulbeen is doing some nice work on, on thinking about complexity theory and thinking about the context, but it's, it's big. It's really big. Yeah. And you're right, uh, Jonathan, that that Barbara will talk about the leadership system, that it's the leader, the followers, and the context yeah. is what she yeah. says right? It's fascinating. And if you're not designing your leadership model and your leadership development model with that in mind, I really feel like it's not relevant enough for the learning and application to happen, which then means we throw millions of dollars at generic concepts that don't land. Yes. (laughs) And, And to build on that and transition then, you mentioned learning, because I know one of the things in your PhD is you found a lot of literature where leadership and learning were almost synonymous. 100%. We know that leadership is learning now. So the second piece I added, which is kind of something that came in from the side, I run, you know, this personal agility book I wrote, the Superpowers book. I've always been working with, and early in my life, I had the opportunity to work with Stephen Covey in The Seven Habits in South Africa and Margaret Weekly. So you'll always see me coming from, because they were involved in our transition, you'll always see me coming from the inside out and the outside in at the same time, right? And I think that's what made my vantage point probably a bit unique, is that I was very, very interested in 
what would the conditions be that we needed to help people with so that they can actually engage in these invisible and less visible processes, Jonathan? And for me, it was, I looked at seven habits and emotional intelligence at positive psychology and then growth mindset Mm. and how Microsoft and everybody's using curiosity and growth mindset. And I, for me, just having seen this for 30 years, if somebody doesn't, is not curious and they don't have a growth mindset, no matter what I do, the learning's not going to occur and they're not going to be adaptable. The leaders are not going to be adaptable. That's why leadership is learning because as you go up the layers and the complexity increases in this stakeholders multiply and it's more emergent, people are struggling to stay curious. They want to revert back. That's that less invisible to being the expert or they work harder and burn themselves out at that achiever level. And they simply can't hold the paradoxes. They can't hold. But alongside that, if they don't have that curiosity of not being overwhelmed by it, but seeing it as interesting, I thought that was an addition. We really had to bring in the context and really that curiosity, grit, focus piece, less distracted to make this happen. I think an interesting way of of framing some of this is that I think sometimes as I'm working with leaders, they construct the role as that they have to have the answers. And something I will, especially when navigating, we could call it wicked problems, VUCA context, adaptive challenges, we could go to a number of different ill-structured problems. It's more about, in some ways, are you bringing the right questions to the table? And as you're working with the team to identify the right questions to work, so that we can co-create and identify a path forward because no one individual has the answer. That's not a thing. (laughs) And in fact, the levels of collaboration required now and co-creation required now to lean into these really complex challenges is exponential compared to what it was before. Mm. It's almost as if, you know, silos just don't even exist anymore in organizations. When I do the organization design piece, It's as if, you know, the walls have collapsed (laughs) Mm. and we're running complex. We're doing, my clients are running on big bets that have cross-functional evolving, you know, we're kind of using design thinking and testing things and they're evolving. And this is so different from the one-year strategic plan that rolled down into everybody's goals, (laughs) (laughs) right? It's very, very complex. Very complex. Now, there was a third piece that you added in this model at the base of it uh, that yes. was maybe has been talked about lots, but wasn't necessarily integrated yet. So can you speak a bit about that? As I was doing the scoping review, but even more so the actual interviews with the practitioners really highlight this issue of we are just still struggling so much with moral and ethical foundations of leadership. And it's as if there's this special three-day program somebody would go on to go off and learn ethical reasoning. But if we don't, it feels like with the complex problems we have and the ethical dilemmas we're facing, let's just take AI for a moment, the ethics of artificial intelligence, right? Yes. Is, it is an issue that leaders have to deal with, board chairs have to deal with. I feel we have to call out that at the core, even underneath adult development processes, There's got to be a level of moral maturity, the ability to hold real ethical dilemmas and moral dilemmas that have no clear answers that we have not seen before. And so much of what we see as failure of leadership, which 
And if you listen to Jeffrey Pfeiffer and these people, we have to look at what goes wrong in leadership too in our leadership models. And I think this is where leadership does go wrong. I think you can probably say, oh, tick, tick, great contextual intelligence. Yes, very curious, all those things, very competent, hmm. ethically, you know, morally not there. For me, was a real challenge. We had to call that out in a more integrated way. Well, I have a question for the two of you because I think, I don't know. I mean, if we go to, let's just take Keegan's model. We could go to Torbert's model as well. But if we went to Keegan's model for just the sake of this conversation, it all for me comes back to that adult development conversation. Because it would seem to me that how someone makes meaning of the conversation around ethics, you know, at stage two, how I'm going to construct ethical behavior may be different than how I construct ethical behavior at stage three. I've been engaged in some conversations in recent times about how someone constructs conversations around Jedi, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And at the different levels, someone might make meaning of that conversation or that topic in very, very different ways. So for me, it just kind of all comes back to this adult development conversation that's so critical. And are we helping people, are we creating environments that help aid in the development and growth of individuals through these stages so that they have the complexity of mind to make meaning of these situations in different ways. Does that make sense? Do you all agree? I mean, challenge that, please. It does make sense. And for me, for me, Jonathan might have a different view and that's good. I say, yes, it is part of adult development, but I think there's actually more to it as well. Okay. Okay. Because I feel like if you look at it's, Kohlberg had a great model. Fabulous. We can work with Kohlberg's model. I mean, I actually use Kohlberg's model when I teach ethical reasoning and moral maturity. Yeah. I actually think we need to immerse leaders much more in moral dilemmas and ethical reasoning challenges along their journey. I don't think we do that well. Mm. You know, I I think we need to test it out a lot more. You know, they do so well. Uh, it's And there's kind of this slippery slope I see in organizations where somebody does something small wrong and they kind of get away with it. And so it's not a very big deal. You know, so you kind of get this moral slippery slope. My worry is I have seen people who measure out really high on adult development. Okay. But when you meet with them, I tell you what, for me, their purpose and value set is almost becomes, it's almost like, I don't know, Richard Barrett talks about it. It's almost like they fall through their own greatness. Mm. And they it's 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 almost I'm gonna use Mandela because he's of course in Desmond Tutu, but there's a sense of humility required to, to really sit in that level of moral maturity that you'd see in a Mandela, for example, where they hold their greatness and insight and sense making at that level, but they also hold it at such a likely and the thing that Mandela did that I think is so different is he really knew how to love his enemies and bring that together and how do you develop that it's it's so tricky and often people would say well you know and and I kind of asked this question of him you know if you were not in prison for so long how much did that shape that experience shape you know how do we do that with an average leader we want to develop you know we can't be in prison then for 27 years because he said to me, I wasn't that man when I walked into prison, right? So wow. I think it's a tricky one, but we have to keep thinking about it because I can tell you, I've got friends who are doing master's degrees in AI ethics and technology ethics. We have yes. got a 
tsunami coming at leaders that are going to, and board directors on cybersecurity, all these things that no one has ever seen before. It's tricky. And so I'll add a little bit to that and some references that we can put in the show notes, Scott. So there's an article that we published in Integral Review recently about uh, Jedi and developmental thinking and a response to that. Yes. Uh, there is also, and and this is why I think it was important, Marianne, that you called out the, the moral and ethical element independent of the adult development, because it can be seen as a line of development. It can be seen as related to how complexly you think about it. But what I also see is it matters what you think about. Okay. One of the things that I have in a model that I built and can talk about in my chapter is that prior to the complexity of thinking, we have this kind of moral element of is our heart in the right place, so to speak? Okay. Do we have a heart at peace or a heart at war in, in terms of Arbinger Institute terms or an inward or outward mindset, um, an I-thou or an I-it relationship? Because that will set the course. And what happens is if you have an objectification of otherness, then what tends to happen is more complex reasoning serves to justify the otherness and not seeing the other as a person. Okay. And so as an example of that, there's another link we can put uh, in here. In Norway, we had this mass murder about 10 years ago, Anders Bering Breivik, who uh, it turns out had fairly complex reasoning. Yet at the same time, you know, the most horrible atrocities in, in modern Norwegian history. So there's no guarantee that complexity of thinking or just ego development, it's development in service of what? Mm. I appreciate that, you all. I really do. That's very helpful. Marianne, now I know that the chapter in the book was the first part of your research, and maybe you could say a little bit more about the second part around developing a leadership development model or leader development model, and the third part about an actual case study, and tell us a little bit about what happened when you tried to apply this work in an organizational context. Sure. You know, I think one of the first things that was really interesting when I was doing the definitions a little bit is I found a lot that talked about leadership and leader. So that was the first thing we had to resolve. It's not the individual leader we're talking about. It's leadership. It's shared collective leadership in the industry 4.0 context. The second thing was leader development and leadership development. <laughs> leader development being that very, you know, competency-based individual leader. Leadership development being a much more complex, integrated, longer-term journey. So that was the first thing. But also a lot of people think, I find people don't think carefully about what are we developing, which is our leadership framework, and how we are developing it, our leadership development framework. And so if we do have a an integrated future fit leadership model, what does an integrated future fit leadership development model look like? So again, we did another scoping review. We also, in the previous interviews, asked questions, not just about how they saw leadership and leadership challenges, but also how they were developing their leadership. So I had that and we did another scoping review. We again said, how has leadership development evolved from very functionalist through to 
much more complex transformative. I just want to clarify for the listener, Marianne, I, I know from editing her writing, is very good at using the word we, but I want to acknowledge that she was the one that did the scoping <laughs> review. <laughs> there was no we involved here. There was no I we involved. I can tell you that Jonathan and Singh worked very hard alongside, even if it was just propping me up from time to time. <laughs> And so it was really interesting. Again, we triangulated the themes that were coming out, right? And the first theme, lo and behold, was contextual factors. And we we wanted to make it nuanced. We did find some people using context when they did leadership. What is it that you actually have to look at? And there were really two models we saw that had a much more future-oriented, integrated contextual flow to it in terms of leadership development. One was the Feltzman's model, and the other was the Rue and Myers. And so, again, we built on that, and we said, what is it that we could work on? Now, what we found when we looked at leadership development in a very much more process-based view and much more contextual view is that there were six things we needed to look at when we design our leadership development journey. The first one is the context, the environmental context within which this will develop. So lots of things, and I'll talk about the case study in a moment, but lots of things that we used. For example, of course, you look at the strategy of the organization. Of course, you look at the internal challenges that the leaders have, the real talent challenges, all the operational challenges. You really want to make sure it's embedded in their language, their industry. But you also, what we do, which is very, very different, we co-create with the participants, we actually do discovery surveys with the participants about how they like to learn, what they want to do, what worked, what didn't work, so that that environmental piece is a real deep dive into internal and external context so that, and we take time. Usually it's so short if people even bother doing it. So that environmental context, the second one is the developmental context. Like It's so important that we spoke about the model is it developmental in nature or is it just a set of competencies thrown at people, right? It mm. really has to be deeply developmental. It has to be relational. And this is really important. The balance of this one is tricky because you want to do collective leadership development where they're learning together and they're sharing leadership in their learning. But you also want to make sure because David Day also says everybody has an individual trajectory but mm. you also personalize it to some extent to meet people where they're at. Otherwise, the development doesn't occur. So environmental, development, relational, and then pedagogical, really tricky, social constructivist, not functionalist in nature, really important that we get into action, learning, reflection, real-life application. I will never use a case study that's generic. Mm. I use, and this is where my consulting background is useful, I use real challenges, real problems. We'll talk about the case study in a moment. We used real clients yeah. with real outcomes, yeah? So really that temporal. So one of the challenges we have is leadership development is lifelong. So what do you do? Everybody wants a six-month program, a 12-month program, an 18-month program. Yeah. What do you do? Do you do micro-learning, ongoing nudges? Do you... How do you create a lifelong leadership development journey? Adults develop lifelong, context change. So that's temporal. And technological, and this is where COVID has boosted us into a new era, virtual, blended, 
using augmented reality, virtual reality, learning experience platform, micro learning platforms. If we do not leverage a different level of learning where we can scale, you know, personalize, social, all those elements. So for me, those six contextual factors have to be built into a modern future for leadership development process. So that was the second part of the PhD. It's a long story, Jonathan, but that was the second part. I then had the opportunity quite fabulously to develop 150 global senior leaders in a professional services firm. And I was given over 24 months. It was going to be blended. And then suddenly it had to be thrown virtual. Mm. And we had to do all that complex development. And we literally took the leadership model and we applied it to their context. We did a 180 degree review with them and their managers. We did a discovery survey with all the participants. We did a desktop review of their industry. And then we designed a learning journey for them over 24 months. And they're now going into an alumni group. I'm just doing that work right now to Mm. do that micro ongoing learning journey. And we literally blended it using different technologies. So it was a set of webinars, podcasts, and real complex problem solving on real clients. And we actually measure, because we want to have impactful development, real sales pipelines, real revenue, and held ourselves accountable to that, and took them through this 24-month journey. And we then assessed it using interviews with the stakeholders that sponsored it up front. We used a survey at level three, two and three of Kirkpatrick to test the assessment and we looked at sales and pipeline results. And we again triangulated that. Great results. Biggest challenge I can tell you for sure is keeping the very senior leaders on board for that long journey of lifelong development when the operational pressures come back in and they want to get the short-term results back and they want to spend less and less time on it. But we are actually winning. I'm still in that client, and we're now taking the next 400 through, right, and looking at how we scale. So I think it worked really, really well. What would I do next? Environment keeps changing. How does ESG, ESG, COP, COP happened in between all of this. We haven't even dealt with that yet. Where is ESG taking us? Um, You know, there's a lot of hybrid wasn't so in full flight yet. That will change again. More things will happen. How do you keep evolving these models? I think is absolutely critical. Well, I just, even as we begin to kind of wind down the conversation, Marianne, I just have so much respect because having an individual who has been in the field and done the work for 30 years and combining that with the research that you've done, how you're thinking about this work, I think it's so cool that practitioner, scholar, those two dimensions to this work, it's just front and center for me. And I just love it because I think for at least how I see it, that's really what we need is we need individuals with that really beautiful blend of both that are are helping to make sense in new ways of what we're seeing out there. Because Oftentimes, at least in my opinion, in my experience, a lot of academics are not in organizational life every day. They are not close to the work. And I think you as an individual who's close to the work and who's actually working to operationalize your model. (laughs) 
ding 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 like <laughs> absolutely i need the crazy clients that are willing to trust me enough and i luckily have this one i have a few that are willing to just say you know we'll just be your test labs go for it <laughs> well and i think you said I, I forget the phrasing i'd have to go back and listen but i think you said something to the effect of we're still in the game or we're still in it you know after 24 months you're still there and and they've invested in it cuz i couldn't agree with you more the the long term lens is a critical element of this whole conversation as well. Jonathan, do you have any concluding thoughts? Yeah, I just, in a similar way, having known Marianne for a number of years now and invited her to contribute to this and been involved with supporting her doctoral research, it's just been an incredible journey because the breadth and scope and depth of pulling all these things together and how it's been a moving target and the ground under you shifted and all these kind of things. Um, it's really been a pleasure to be on that journey, even though it's had its ups and downs and challenges, as you know, um, as all doctoral, good doctoral research will have. So, uh, but what's exciting about it to me is the need to continue to kind of push the edge of what do we need to consider? And how do we gather that in a way that is at least digestible? You can look and see a model and it kind of gives you elements or you can have, here's the six things in doing leader development that you could think of in this, having those kind of comprehensive models and processes that integrate things is becoming more and more relevant. Yep. Well, Marianne, as we wind down our time, we always ask guests what maybe has caught your attention recently, what you've been streaming, listening to, what you've been reading. It may have something to do with what we've just discussed. It may have nothing to do. Well, actually, there is one business thing and one personal thing. The business one is the McKinsey research on what makes a good CEO. I don't know if you've read that. I have not. It's pretty incredible. The okay. latest book on the research of really lived practice of what makes a good CEO, I think is so relevant. And even though it doesn't use any of these concepts, you can literally see it coming through in these CEOs, right? So I think if, if anybody's listening, I think that's a really good place. And by the way, I don't get paid by McKinsey to say this. <laughs> you know, that the other that on a personal level, moving to Ireland the last seven months, Ireland is a very lyrical, poetic place. Mm. And the real reading of people like John O'Donoghue and the, the real spiritual lens that they bring to things and the wisdom is pretty incredible. And one of the things about the people here that I think is so good for leaders to know is that I've never been listened to or empathized with at the level that people do here and a genuine curiosity, interest and care and human connection that I've almost never experienced. Wow. And for me, I'm really trying to get in underneath that to say why why is it so easy for people to do that here you know i have an executive assistant that, that you know is not well at the moment and i have people in other countries people go oh okay well sorry to hear that here it's like you know we're going to pray for this person and light seven candles and are you okay and what i'm really interested in this level of really caring and really listening and the power that has in human connection and and how people can really want to do something. Hmm. So I, I'm studying Irish culture, I would say. I love it. Jonathan, anything you want to add to to conclude our session today? 
No, I'm just, I'm thrilled to be able to, you know, have this opportunity with you, Scott, and to have you, Marianne, and all the other authors that we're bringing in. It's great fun for me to have been on the journey of pulling together the book and doing all the editorial work, and now to get to kind of promote it on this kind of platform and and share with a, a broader audience who may not have wanted to buy the academically priced book, <laughs> but, but now as it's out in paperback can actually try to make use of this and have this kind of easy to digest intro to these things. I'm, I'm really excited about that. Well, Jonathan, thank you for the work that you do. Dr. Marianne, thank you for the work that you do. We uh, And I heard you say something like in my conversations with Mandela, maybe we'll have you back and we can talk about uh, those experiences if I was hearing correctly. <laughs> and, and I just say there are actually others that, that that made that happen and that worked with him full time. And so we can we might have a slightly broader chat with a few other people. Nice. That would be really interesting. Oh, that would be a lot of fun. That would be a lot of fun. Well, have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for being with us. And for listeners, thanks for checking in. Jonathan, we titled this episode, There's More to It. What do you think? I think that this came because as we listened to Marianne, it became clear that there's just more to leadership development than we'd ever imagined. Mm. You know, the kind of extensiveness of the the literature that was reviewed and the ways that integrative models were built and you just see wow there's just more to it so that's how that came about i love it so what are a couple observations from this episode that really stood out for you in this conversation with marianne i loved it yeah i think that one of the things that stood out was the context, her growing up in South Africa in the midst of the change from apartheid and how that influenced her ability to handle complexity. Wow. Setting leadership in context, the convergence of the fourth industrial revolution, like artificial intelligence, hybrid work, how people feel about the work, the need for purposeful work and social justice. These all kind of stood out as part of the context of leadership. As I talked about briefly, these are the hard work of doing a scoping review, even though I know it was bounded and narrow. Wow, that's a lot of work. And then to take integrative models and try and see what more is there to it. The notion of invisible or less visible aspects of these models. Hmm. Taking, for instance, David Day's model and saying, yes, and there are things kind of implicit. How do we make them explicit and visible? The centrality of learning really stood out for me that leadership and learning are, are becoming more and more synonymous. And the importance of ethics and how that is independent of notions of adult development and content and how important that is to bring into the models. Well, and you said something there that just stands out for me, and this is maybe the practical wisdom or one piece of it in what you just said and what we just heard, is that uh, learning is a way of being, right? That we are in that continual state of curiosity and exploration, and it's systematized in a really, really nice way because, boy, as the context shifts, right? Is this really Scott and Jonathan, or is this some new version of Chat GPT? 
<laughs> Pretty soon they'll be coming after us. They'll be creating podcasts. Wonderful. Learning is a way of being. Are we staying in it? And there's more to it. Thank you, Jonathan. Have a great day, sir. Thanks, Scott. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.